It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Monday, December 13th, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Before we go on, when I read the date, December 13th, that's a really important date. 50 years ago, today, I made Aliyah. Oh, wow. It's a, a big Mazal deal. Uh, yeah. I just noticed it when I was <laughs> typing out the date. I said, oh, my God. So this is exciting. Forget about me. Let's talk about us now. Our theme for today is, Tis the Season, Jews, Christians, and Muslims in the Holy Land. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Friends, as I've said the last couple of episodes, and barring some unexpected event, in our next session, the upcoming episode, we're going to turn it around and ask you what you would like us to talk about. So please continue to send us your questions so that we can talk about them on the show. Send an email or even better yet, an audio recording of your question that we can play during the podcast. Send it to for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Please let us know if you don't want us to use your name. We look forward to hearing from you. Let's begin. For Jews in the West who live in Christian societies, the winter holiday season ushers in a period of reflection and engagement with the dominant religious culture around them. From how they survive as a religious minority to how they engage and participate together with other monotheistic faiths. For the Jews of Israel, the winter holiday season is already over. It began and ended with Hanukkah, which from a Gregorian calendar perspective was early this year. In North America, of course, the holiday season is in full flow. Christmas is everywhere. But here in the land of Jesus' birth, you must really search hard for signs of Christmas and Christianity. Even though more than 20% of Israelis observe either Islam or Christianity, together we celebrate very little. Which brings us to today's conversation on the interreligious dimension of Judaism and Jewish statehood. Is interfaith learning and dialogue so central to North American Jewish life and sensibilities merely a diasporic phenomena as a result of our minority status or our need to adjust to the majority culture? Or is interfaith a profound advance towards a world of deep religious humility and pluralism? Does being a Jewish state mean that we are finally freed of any need to interact with the two-faiths that dominated us for centuries? Or are there responsibilities and possibilities that come with our changed circumstance, with the fact that for the first time in our history, the Jewish people is a majority in its land, with Christians and Muslim minorities of our own? And finally, are there opportunities for exploring new relationships with Christianity and Islam from a position of psychological self-confidence and spiritual curiosity, rather 
than historical trauma. What would a mature Israeli relationship to Christianity and Islam look like? Yossi, it's wonderful to be with you again. Pleasure to be with you, Daniel. I just came back from the United States, and I felt Christmas full on. I want, let, let's start on a personal dimension. Do you miss Christmas? You know, I have a very counterintuitive relationship with Christmas. When I lived in America, growing up in the Orthodox neighborhood of Borough Park in Brooklyn, I had virtually no awareness of Christmas at all. When I came to Israel, unlike most Israelis, I developed a relationship with Christmas here, here in Israel, here in Jerusalem. Uh, I actively sought it out. And so I don't miss American Christmas because I never had a relationship with it. And I do have a, a very lively relationship with Christmas as an Israeli. That really is. That, first, Yossi, How about you? That is one of the most counterintuitive. <laughs> but, but that's what happens when you make Aliyah from Borough Park, <laughs> from, <laughs> from the ghetto of Borough Park to Cosmopolitan that's right. Jerusalem. That's really a. <laughs> oh, I do, by the way. You, you may be saying this tongue in cheek, Daniel. But I think that Jerusalem is the cosmopolitan city in Israel. It's not Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is a very provincial you know, Jewish city. That's also city. really, really interesting. Jerusalem really is a world city. That, that itself, I want, let's maybe come back to that because that is also so counterintuitive because, again, it depends on which Jerusalem you choose to experience. Because for so many people, Jerusalem is, is right, dominated right. by one segment of orthodoxy, and they really don't realize how cosmopolitan it really is. Oh, you just, just expand, expand your lens of Jerusalem, and suddenly the whole world is here. But you have to be willing to experience Jerusalem through a Christian lens. Right. You, you always speak about how you look out from your living room and you see the wall. So now you just have to turn around and actually look into Jerusalem and you could see religious diversity right, right here in front of you. Um, if you ask, do I miss Christmas? As a child growing up in Montreal, I think my parents did everything in their power to make us unaware of Christmas. And the fact that we grew up without a television made it easier. So there were trees, but, you know, there was a tree, but I was in Cote St. Luke, Montreal, without a television. And my only encounter with the non-Jewish world was that I would take a bus, bus number 161. I think it was on Van Horn Street from Cote St. Luke to Outremont. That was the only place I, I encountered the non-Jewish world. So Christmas was not a significant other. But when I moved back to the United States in the 80s, I was already at another stage in my life. And I was raised, and it was a very deep part of my religious commitment, was never to believe that my commitment to Judaism meant that Judaism was the best religion. I didn't grow up in a competition between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I grew up in a world in which Judaism was just simply mine simply mine. There was no notion that Judaism is better or we have something that someone else doesn't have. There was no superiority. And as a result, I was always very open to other religious traditions. So my initial experience of Christmas was never, oh my God, what's going to happen to the Jews? Like that was, oh my God, what's going to be? It was looking. And, and in many ways, a lot of my religious life was shaped by Bishop Christian Stendhal on this issue when he coined a phenomenal phrase, which has inspired me for decades, and that is the phrase, holy envy. 
when you look at another religious tradition, it's not, it's not a question, is mine better? He says, is there, do, could you reach a moment where you're envious of something? And so when you ask, I, I haven't searched out Christmas here in Israel as you have. I do miss the feeling of experiencing the beauty of another person's religious tradition. Even this stupid, excuse me, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, Hallmark movies, you know, where it's, it's positive and love and gentleness. and kind, it, Christmas brings out the best or aspires to bring out something good in people. And I like living in a world in which I could interact with it as a Jew and be touched by it without ever celebrating it. That, or maybe in a certain sense, I do celebrate it. I celebrate its existence and it impacts me. And part of that multicultural experience, you know, I've had it in graduate schools because I did a graduate degree in Christianity. And then I finished all my coursework for a PhD in Islam before I had to drop it because my eyesight went on me. But I love this spirit of different religious traditions being able to be wholly envious of each other. And I miss that here in Israel. Well, you know, for me, I really discovered Christianity and Islam in Israel. And uh, it was a deliberate choice. Uh, I went on a year-long journey about 20 years ago into Christianity and Islam, and, and I wrote a book about the journey. And it was really prompted, I'd say, by two things, in particular, the piece of it into Christianity. And that was a realization of how profoundly Christianity had changed theologically in its relationship to Judaism and the Jewish people, and also the realization of how profoundly we had changed. We were now a sovereign state with a Christian minority. We had reversed the dynamic. And so I felt this tremendous opportunity as an Israeli. I could discover Christmas. I could open myself up to the beauty, as you, the wonderful phrase of, of Christus Stendhal. I, I, could, I could allow myself the possibility of holy envy to a religion which I'd grown up fearing and loathing because I was looking at Christianity through historical so you were Jewish eyes. And I wanted to experience Christianity as a religion. Yes, by, so by the state so of Israel, you, by I, Zionism. I to you, it's beautiful. Coming on Aliyah redeemed you of your fears, and it opened up spiritual possibilities and journeys for you. So how come you and I are so weird? Because yes. let's be honest. In Israel, you know, first we are weird, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why we love each other. You know, we two weird people found each other. But other than other than the fact that we love each other in order to transcend our own loneliness, um, in all reality, um, we're, I'm, we're laughing here, but it's not a joke. But in all truth, it's very strange. In Israel, there's this such a Islam doesn't even rate. You know, Islam slash his enemy. It's just, you know, to even engage seriously, you know, Islam equals jihad, end of story, conversation over. But Christianity, there's so much fear of converting us. Like the conversation just doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen. Now, yeah. I remember yeah. one of the core textbooks that we wrote for public schools here in Israel was on Jewish identity. And um, in the textbook, we had a medieval picture and there was also a quote from the Christian Bible. The Knesset Education Committee convened specially to talk about the Hartman Institute's missionizing of Jews. <laughs> it's like it's people get hysterical here. So, you know, why do you what how do you what's really? your take well. on it? Because they didn't they didn't go through everybody made Aliyah. So how come what happened to you 
is not happening to others? Or how do you assess what's going on here? So first of all, I think that what you and I have in common is we had some wonderful teachers, in particular your father. Uh, Your father was really one of the trailblazers here who gave an authentic Jewish framework for interfaith. Uh, I would cite Yitz Greenberg as well. Yitz, Yitz had a very deep impression on me. So I think we were blessed with teachers. And uh, a lot of the hard work was done by the generation before us. We came in and we picked the fruit to some extent. But I also think, Danielle, that what you and I have in common is an insatiable curiosity about the other. And that's what brought me to journalism. I I worked as a journalist for many years because I really wanted an excuse (laughs) to to eavesdrop and, and enter into all different kinds of worlds. And initially for me, that was confined to the multiplicity of Jewish worlds. I really wanted to understand the diversity of Israeli Jewish communities. But eventually I said, well, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, 20% of Israeli citizens aren't Jewish, they're Arab. Uh, We've got 2 million Palestinians here. We've got 100 Christian denominations within virtually walking distance of my front door. What's that world all about? And I discovered extraordinary riches in, in Christian Jerusalem and also in Muslim Jerusalem. And to be able to have entered into those experiences. And I, you know, I'm I'm not a theologian. I wasn't interested in exploring what you believe as opposed to what we believe. That, That really didn't interest me. I wanted to experience how you as a Christian or you as a Muslim live your devotional life. How do you experience God in your life? How do you experience your most intimate human moments? So, but that's you. How come Israelis, how come it's so rare here? What is it? What are Israelis frightened of in your mind? Is it all politics or is there something deeper than that? No, I think that first of all, Israelis are still afraid of these two religions. They're afraid of Christianity and afraid of Islam for different reasons. Israelis, I don't think, have internalized just how deeply much of Christianity, especially Catholicism, has changed in its theology toward Judaism and the Jewish people. It's a revolution. There is no religion in history that so profoundly changed a core theological belief about another religion the way that Christianity did in relation to us. And that's something we have never fully acknowledged as a people. And Israelis are completely unaware of it. And I saw it, you know, when the Pope came, Pope John Paul II came to Jerusalem. And you remember he put a note in the Kotel. And all of the Israeli newspapers led headlines, headlines. What what were they all excited about? The Pope denounces anti-Semitism. They missed the core theological moment, which was the Pope in his note in the Kotel spoke about the Jews as the people of the covenant. He was repudiating 2,000 years of Christian supersessionist theology. And Israelis missed it. So first of all, Israelis don't understand what's changed. And secondly, and this is something you've talked a lot about, Daniel, we haven't fully internalized the responsibilities and opportunities of sovereignty. We haven't fully owned it yet. We're the majority here. What are we afraid of? And the truth is, in recent years, I don't know if you've noticed this, in recent years, 
I've seen in some of the Christmas celebrations in churches around the country, uh, more and more secular Israelis attending, uh, attending. I mean, they'll they'll show up with 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 cameras, and it's like experiencing a little bit of chutzlar. It's you know, like like traveling abroad. It's a cheap trip. It's a, yeah, yeah. But I think that it's still significant in that it broke something of the psychological. You barrier. know, if I would pick up on that a little bit, you know, Israelis are phenomenal tourists. They also have an insatiable curiosity about the world. And now in the midst of Corona, there was just an interview last night. How come you're going? You won't know if you come back, if your country's going to be a red country, you have to go into quarantine. And the person says, well, we have to travel. Like that was a self-given. This was, this was an existential, it wasn't a desire. It wasn't a, any, it was just, I have to travel. So whatever the consequences will be, will be. But when I look at the state of interfaith dialogue or learning or openness here, so much of Israel is divided. While there's a hundred Christian, actually there's literally 13 Christian denominations, but while there's so much diversity within our Jewish community, two dominant communities shape the public sphere. One is ultra-Orthodox and religious Zionists, and truth be told, in America, Orthodox don't engage in extensive interfaith. There was this famous um, letter written by uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Zichron Olivracha, which is always quoted that you can't do interfaith dialogue. And my father was attacked for doing it. So that's not, it's more liberal Jews of America which who engage in it. But much of liberal Judaism in Israel is still defined more by what they're not than what they are. They're still more, very often, non-Orthodox than they are, I'm an active liberal Jew. And the interfaith engagement assumes a comfort with who you are. But if you haven't worked out a clear identity, so as an Israeli, I might want to take a trip and see Nazareth, you know, see what, how they celebrate. But a real, you know, that moment of holy envy doesn't start when you see the other. It starts when you have something that you stand on. Mm -hmm. And I've always said that the, that the reason why so many Israelis don't fight for religious pluralism is religious pluralism is only important if you care about where you stand. And then you want to know how it gets expressed in the public sphere. Similar here. It's, I, I, think, I think Jews are unprepared for it. And, and very often, you know, when they, you know when their minds blow? When they go on their post-army trip to the Far East, and all of a sudden they discover spiritual life. <laughs> they never they discover it. And I don't know, they don't engage in an interfaith dialogue with, with Buddhism or Hinduism. They just embrace aspects of it. Yeah, there's an irony here, Danielle. The irony is that you're 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 pointing out is that the very open-mindedness of secular Israelis in some ways impairing their ability to receive from another faith, to, to relate to another faith, because they're, they're so open-minded that they don't know where they stand in their own tradition. And, uh, and that's really something I think that we at the Institute have put as one of our main goals is uh, one of the things that you once said about this really stayed with me. And uh, I, heard, I heard you give this in a lecture to, uh, to secular Israeli high school teachers. And you said, I don't care what your relationship to Judaism is. I don't care what how you describe yourself as a Jew, but be a serious 
if you're going to be a secular Jew, be a serious secular Jew. What do you believe about Spinoza? What do you know about Spinoza? Be a serious secular Jew. And that, I think, is really in some ways the deeper philosophy of the pluralism that we stand for. We want you to be who you think you are, but we want you to be serious about it. And then that gives you the capacity to reach out to the other and receive from the other. You know, it's we're actually trying right now to play with this and to introduce interfaith learning and discourse, not on the clergy level, but on a mass level in this program that's trying to ask, how do we build a shared society between Jews, Christians, and Muslims, between Israelis and Palestinians here in Israel? And so often when you try to do it, the, the political animosity is so front and center, our different narratives, my political identity, that the conversation comes to an end after the first meeting. So all shared civil society discourse has a rule. Don't bring up your political narrative. Don't bring it up. So now what do we do? What does it mean for an Israeli Jew to meet an Israeli-Palestinian? What does it mean? So what do we do? We keep all the explosive issues outside, and we create what's known as hummus meetings, where we eat hummus and we can talk about who, who, who discovered hummus and falafel. You know, Israelis were claiming that falafel and hummus are the original Israeli foods, uh, that we came up with them. Or we, we talk about soccer, or we have groups of students playing in music bands together. All of these things are wonderful. The, they do create human interaction, but we don't meet each other because the idea is that if you're fully present, we're going to have animosity. So leave yourself outside so that we could come in. And one of the things we've been exploring, and we're unfolding it now in tens of schools, is where we study Jewish, Christian, and Muslim values from each one of our religious traditions. We study each other's calendar. And the idea is, is that yes, Jews engage. It's so interesting. Jews, when they, in these meetings, we study Jewish texts, all of a sudden they're proud Jews. You know, like, oh, I love my text. These are their texts. But then you see how can we use religion as a vehicle for creating engagement with the other, in which the other feels seen, feels respected, feels heard, feels present. Eventually, we're going to have to do the political, but our whole methodology is to use religion as a vehicle, and in many ways, it's precisely this type of interfaith engagement which we want to introduce into Israel, and so we're trying to do it through this curriculum with teachers and students, but if I would ask you, Yossi, uh, uh, a question as we're coming more closer to an end. Uh, I just gave one example, but what would real interfaith engagement look like? in the context of a sovereign Jewish state. Here it is, you could decide, you're the minister of education, you're the minister of religion, you're the interior minister, or you're a journalist who writes and people read. What, what is it that you would yearn for? What should it look like? First of all, it would be changing the curriculum in Israeli schools where we would be teaching not just the history of religion, but the substance of these other religions. And uh, what do they believe? Why do they believe it? What, are the, what is their devotional life like? I would have trips by Israeli uh, schools to, uh, to monasteries. And I think that that's that I, the monasteries that I know in this country would love to host Israeli groups of Israeli kids. There are, interestingly, it does happen to some extent in the army. 
The army does sometimes bring groups to visit Christian sites. Uh, so that's one piece of it. For those who are so inclined, I, I think that we have an opportunity here to go in uh, more deeply from a place of self-confidence to experience something of the inner life of Christian spirituality. When I want to get away, I go to uh, a monastery for Shabbat. They leave me alone. I have a wonderful place to meditate, to daven. And, you know, I had to overcome my fear of Christian symbols, of a Christian space. But that's what interfaith feels to me like in a sovereign Jewish state. You're not afraid. You're, you're, these are opportunities for spiritual expansion. You know, Yossi, as when you're, you just revealed your Shabbat, I know I think you're, on, you're, you're on Facebook, aren't you, Yossi? I am. So I think the, there's a whole bunch of people who unliked you right now. <laughs> oh my God, what did he just say? <laughs> I think you made up two, you made two friends and lost a hundred. But, but as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm used to it, Daniel. I'm used to it. Um, as I'm hearing you talk as that giving up the fear, there is no doubt that you know, if we're going to take high school students, you know, there might be a kid or two who's going to get turned on by Christianity or Islam. And if you're living in this perpetual demographic fear of Jewish continuity, oh my God, what's going to happen in the modern world? And paradoxically, when it comes to interfaith dialogue, all of Israel, too much of Israel, wants to live in an intellectual Haredi ghetto, where the way you deal with competition is by shutting it out. And that's so counterintuitive to the way so many Israelis live, but on this issue, they're there. If I would have one thing that I would change, there's going to be two, of course, but one would be like you, what you're speaking about. And I think that's what we're trying to do in schools, where Jewish, Muslim, and Christian students could together engage in each other's religious traditions, not even in theory, but each one learns what are my holidays about, what are my central values, so that we could create respect and that we create a way of seeing the other. There would be one other change that I would institute. And I learned this from a colleague and friend, Professor Danny Statman. I, I never thought about it. And you know, sometimes in your life, someone says something and it's just like, oh my God, how come I never thought about this? Danny Statman, he instituted this in the University of Haifa and he talks about it. And he says, why doesn't Israeli society also have a number of Christian and Muslim holidays in our national calendar? The national Hebrew calendar of Israel, which is the calendar where the whole country stops working, where businesses are closed or, or you don't have to take a vacation day, says, what would happen? What would happen if, if, if Christmas would be a vacation day for all of Israeli society? If Muslim holidays would be a day of celebration for everybody. If throughout our society, it wasn't just Christians and Muslims who would have to adjust and come into the rhythm of Jews, but we would see them. There, you know, I think Israeli society and economy is now rich enough that we could add another four or five holidays during the year in which the other person's religion is nationally celebrated. If we could beautiful. reach that moment, beautiful. I think that would yeah. be something Yossi, last word before we turn to Ilana. I think that really what, what we're saying here is that religion is so often perceived as part of the problem, especially uh, here in the Middle East, and, and it often is, of course, but it's also potentially part of the solution. And it's such an underutilized asset in our relationship with our neighbors that it's a way of softening the political divide rather than deepening it. Right. Let's take a break for a minute 
And when we come back, Ilana will join us. Hi, my name is Dan Rubin, and I'm a proud member of the board of directors of the Shalom Hartman Institute. If you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you like Jewish ideas. So do I. In fact, every time I learn with Hartman, I email my kids the big ideas and new perspectives that inspire me. Now I can also forward them podcast episodes. My three children have very different points of view on Judaism, politics, and Israel. Yet I find that if we base our discussions around Hartman ideas and values, we can talk together about a Judaism that has meaning to them, about concepts that make their Jewish identity stronger, and about approaches that keep them committed to the idea of Israel with all of its complexities. I support Hartman because it enriches Jewish life in North America and Israel, and because of what it does for me and my family. I hope you'll join me today by making a year-end gift to the Hartman Institute at www.shalomhartman.org. Thank you. Ilana, it's really nice to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, actually. I just got back from uh, Florida, so <laughs> no complaints. How are the Chagim? How are the holiday season in New York? <laughs> so the holiday season, we have our the small menorah in our lobby is still up, and the huge Christmas tree with lots of accoutrements is right there overshadowing it. I have to say, you know, there are certain things about this conversation that really resonate with me. And then there's also things about this conversation where I'm just starting in such a different place. Um, I start from Jewish law. And so the conversation about Judaism and Christianity is not about what happened in the past. And it's it's actually a question of what are the limits of Jewish law in terms of my engagement. And so when we talk about like holy envy, the place where it's so easy for me is actually Islam. Islam is much easier just in terms of some of the tenets and the way that classical Jewish law and traditional Jewish law has looked at Islam. So when we have our Muslim Leadership Institute weekends, I always watch the prayer services because I'm so envious of the bowing. It's the most beautiful thing that five times a day you would literally prostrate yourself on the ground. doesn't matter how fancy what you're wearing is or not fancy, if you're going to get a little bit scuffed or you're going to get a little bit wrinkled, but you just, you know, you just submit and it's the most beautiful thing. So it's just interesting. And then at the same time, I have a PhD in religion from Columbia University. So I've done plenty of study of Christianity, teaching Christianity, studying of Islam, teaching of Islam. So it's 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 just interesting to hear this, but I, I think you know, Jewish law plays a, a big role in where I'm able to go on this conversation. But I don't want to focus on me. I just wanted to share that's, you know, somewhat where I'm coming from. What I want to add to the conversation here is I want to add what I think is a really smart categorization that Dr. Alan Brill offers in a book called Judaism and Other Religions. What he does is he mines Jewish tradition and Jewish intellectual development for what he suggests are three different orientations towards other religions. One he calls the exclusivist orientation, which is, you know, your own community tradition encounter with God is the only exclusive truth. Another sort of all the way on the other side is the pluralist tradition that no one tradition can possess the singular truth, right? But then he he, he offers this in-between category, which I think is interesting, the inclusivist, who acknowledges that there are a lot of communities with their own traditions, but still maintains the importance of their own way of seeing things as like 
the truth that they accept. So I want to give you an example from each of them and, and think a little bit together. You know, he's talking theologically, but there's no such thing as pure theology, right? There's always social dimensions. There's always political dimensions in how it goes. And so it's fascinating to me that his exclusivist example actually comes from someone who is very revered by everyone in Jewish tradition, Rashi, right? Our medieval scholar who wrote everything on Bible and wrote everything on Talmud. And interestingly enough, Rashi was a deep exclusivist, right? His deep exclusivist nature comes out. I'm just going to give you the example. This is not to be cited out of context, please. Um, there's a political aspect here too. And what he's talking about is he's writing his comments on Exodus chapter 33, verse 16, which is basically where Moses says to God, how will I know that I found grace in your sight, me and my people? And how do I know that you'll go with us and that we're distinguished and we're your people from everyone's on the face of the earth? And the way that Rashi interprets it is he says, how are we going to know that you walk with us? I'm asking you that you should not be present among other nations and we will be separate in this way, right? Now, when you look at what Rashi was living through, I mean, he's living through crusades, Jews versus Christians. You can't divorce the theological point, just like the point that you two are making of what do you do when you're a sovereign state and you're the majority is the exclusivist paradigm. Is that even something that makes any sense anymore? Or do you specifically adopt the exclusivist paradigm when you're feeling beleaguered? And it has to be a seesaw that when we're up, they're down. And when they're up, we're down, right? There's something about the mutual exclusion that is a zero sum. At the other end, you know, I always say Italian Jews, Italian Jews in the Middle Ages were like, you could put them in America in the 21st century and what they say would make plenty of sense. So on the opposite end, the universalist, the pluralist, right? Emmanuel of Rome, okay? This is 13th century. This is not 21st century, 13th century, this is an Italian Jewish scholar. He's a satirical poet, and he wrote a parody of Dante's Inferno called Tophet Ve'eden, which is basically like hell and heaven. And he writes the following. This is an English translation and created poetically, which is really fascinating. These are the pious among the Gentile state, who by their intellect and wisdom have become great. Whilst they with their intelligence searched out those who formed them and who was their creator, and as they passed the faiths of all under examination, but they chose of all beliefs views such as seemed to them right, upon which people versed in conscience had no cause to fight. And when people boastfully would attach the name of God, our hearts trembled. It shook our frame to think that each and every people should give him, meaning God, some definite name. We, however, say, be God's name whatsoever. We believe in the first existence of the true one whom we never from our life can ever sever. And what he's basically saying is he's saying we get very nervous when other people claim God, but really God by any name is God, right? Super universalist, pluralist, a 13th century. Can you imagine? And you have to also ask yourself, what was the political, the social milieu that gives rise to that ability to talk that way and think that way? And then for the inclusivist, what you're going to feel 
is I think you're going to feel this sort of um, everybody, God by any name is da 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 da. And you're not going to feel, well, it's got to be us and not them. But in the inclusivist, you're going to feel a person who says, well, I clearly see it through my Jewish lens. And I want to emphasize what we have in common rather than what distinguishes us. And for that, I want to give the example of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who's in 18th century Germany. And he's a Talmudist. And he writes, and also translated into English, we should consider Christians and Muslims as instruments for the fulfillment of the prophecy that the knowledge of God will one day spread throughout the earth, right? He's taking like Jewish prophecy and saying they're a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, whereas the nations before them worshiped idols, denied God's existence, and thus did not recognize God's power or retribution. The rise of Christianity and Islam served to spread among the nations to the furthest ends of the earth, the knowledge that there is one God who rules the world, who rewards and punishes and is revealed to humankind, right? So it's emphasizing what you actually have in common, but you can see that it's so much from a Jewish lens and you would ask yourself, well, what do you do with Eastern religions? How would Eastern religions actually fit in? So I wanted to offer this as sort of a categorization because I don't think it's like pro-dialogue versus anti-dialogue. What I like about what Brill does is he says, okay, well, who do we know who is in the exclusivist model and why? And there could be theological reasons. There could be halachic, like Jewish legal reasons. There also could be social and political reasons. Who do we see who's in the camp of pluralism and universalism? And is that for theological reasons, social reasons, political reasons? Who's in the camp of inclusivism where they're sort of trying to hold it together in a way? And what are the limitations of that? And is that for theological reasons, social reasons, political reasons? So I just like that you're bringing up the conversation. But I want to push you, Ilana. Triple level. I want to push you. Push away. What would you like to see in Israel? Because we always believe that Israel doesn't belong to Israelis. And we know you. And we know you and your family. Your relationship to Israel is, you have a stake here. So I'm going to assume it's not a big risk to say that I know that you accept that there are some exclusivists and it's good for them if it's good for them. And so you'll be a pluralist to exclusivists if you have to. <laughs> Got it. Oh, so okay. you know me. I know so you. you. But know now me. I want you to, what, what should we do here? Could we, should we celebrate, should in Israel we learn each other's traditions? Should we celebrate, um, is there room in Israel for the whole country to celebrate what 20%, I want to remind you, Ilana, you're 2% of America. And I know the menorah is small, but still, it has given such a place in the larger it's public amazing sphere. It's amazing that it's there. It's there. It's in the public sphere. It's, it's amazing that it's, it's there. You know, and so we compensate for however we compensate. But the, um, could we, in the Knesset, in, in, could the president of Israel invite Jews and Christians to a candle-lighting Christmas tree, just like there's a Hanukkah thing in the White House? Should we? Not can we. I will take, where do you stand on this, Ilana? I would put it like this. I am um, a religious humanist in the sense that I believe that God cares about everyone and I believe that religion is a force for good in the world. And I would want to see that celebrated in some real way where people are willing to understand each other, both for their differences and for their similarities. I have to be honest because I'm very much sort of a, a Jewish law person and that traditionalism really rules the way that I decide. I'd actually have to spend some time figuring it out. Like what would be something that's in bounds and what's something that's out of bounds? And I understand that that's not necessarily the way you think about Israel writ large. But if if you're talking to me personally, I would definitely ask the question of what are the limits 
wherein you can actually still show that other people have a place here and that their religious engagement is valuable. You know, Ilana, as you're saying that, you know, again, could I challenge as an Israeli? Yeah, of course you can. And you're not going to be happy. Israel's not a halachic state. Of course it's I, you not. You know, again, could you, that same question could apply with, oh, excuse me, are we allowed to have buses on Shabbat? For sure. So you don't use that halachic criteria. There's what Ilana does in her house and what the state of Israel should do. You recognize that difference. Why is there more hesitation? This is my last push. Why is there more hesitation about now you're, Israel has to be a halachic state? I'm not asking what you should do personally. That I'm sure that President Biden's priest might say, what? How are you lighting a Hanukkah menorah? What are you doing here? And yet you're saying, one second, I have to follow halachic practice. I asked for the state of Israel, not for Ilana Steinhain's house when she makes aliyah. Okay, so here, let's put it like this. You are coming up against, in your conversation with me right now, the minority mindset, and I'm coming up against the majority mindset. And what I mean by that is I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what the actual state majority position should be. It's not where my mind spends its time. Fair enough. And I think it would be disingenuous for me to say, oh, I know what we should do. It, this conversation challenges me in a great way to say, what does it look like for a halachically, a Jewish law-abiding Jew to think in broader terms for the good of the state of Israel? And I haven't done a lot of that. I'm being honest, I haven't done a lot of it. I've done a lot of it for thinking about American Jewry and how we work together. But that's always circumscribed by our minority by our minority identity and the desire to get along and to be together. And there's social and there's political and there's theological, but you're asking me to work in a different, in a different lane, which I think is a great lane, but I, so I'm, gonna check, I'm not ready I'm gonna to do check it today. In with you. I love it. I'm checking in with you in one year's time, Ilana. <laughs> so on the 51st anniversary time. of your Aliyah. Anniversary I'm of, excited. My, of my Aliyah. I'm excited. <laughs> Yossi, last thoughts or words for us. I think Ilana is raising a really important point, which is that our experiences as a majority and minority are so different and, and our considerations don't necessarily translate from one place to the other. So for example, the notion that certain halachic attitudes uh, toward Christianity in particular, which developed under conditions of extreme minority status would apply to a sovereign Jewish state, to me, is really antithetical to my understanding of Zionism. By the same token, Daniil, I think we have to recognize that American Jews do need to set up certain boundaries with the dominant culture, which we here uh, don't have to contend with. So I think it's a really interesting window into majority-minority dynamics in the context of uh, American-Jewish-Israeli relations. Thank you for that, and you're right. What's really interesting, though, is that the majority of North American Jews who might need boundaries are exploring every day the dismantlement of boundaries, while the Israelis, who don't need them or should be over them, are, are holding on tight. So talk exactly about right. a, uh, a reverse exactly universe right. Fascinating. And, and what an interesting conversation might look like. 
For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by M. Lewis Gordon. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at forheavenssake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. See you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Yossi and Ilana, thank you. I won't end with happy holidays. I won't.